Jeremiah chapter 36, if you have a Bible, let's go ahead and open up there. Jeremiah 36 and 37, as we're going to look at what I would call wonderful warnings. And so um, if you're not a Christian, and I'm assuming that all of you guys are, are probably Christians, right? Um, if you're not a Christian or if you're not sure whether or not you're a Christian, then one, that's the biggest warning of all. You don't want to die without Christ. You don't want to die without having given your life to him, placed your faith in Jesus who died for you, rose again, because that's how you go to heaven. And so that's the biggest warning of all. But then even for Christians, you guys, here we are tonight, and maybe you're a Christian. We still need warnings. We do. I know that, you know, every day our kids leave the house. So we always tell them, and even though they're not little kids, they're our children, we tell them drive carefully. And I think Shelly even tells me, drive carefully. And in case you're wondering why, it's because every year 43,000 people die in car accidents. 43,000. How many of them could have been prevented? Maybe the individual was on their cell phone, you know, they were texting. You guys would never do that while you're driving, right? You know, or, or maybe they were just not paying attention. You know, when I first got my license, I remember they told us, you know, to put our hands in certain spots. Now, you know, we're driving like this, you know, and, uh, we're, you know, checking the radio. And so, I don't know, maybe out of those 43,000 deaths, a lot of those could have been eliminated. And so that's just an example when it comes to driving a car. But what about living your life as a Christian? You know, the Bible says to walk circumspectly, to walk carefully. And so today uh, we have these wonderful warnings in the book of Jeremiah. And I pray that we would be open to them, that we would be open because uh, one of the things that I noticed about the word warning is the word war that's in there. You know, you might be here tonight and you might be a strong Christian. You're like, I'm a strong Christian. Well, you know what that means if you're a strong Christian? That you are going to fight stronger demons. If you're a strong Christian, then you have a bullseye on your back, on your heart. If you're a strong Christian, then the devil is scheming. Man, he's like, I got to take that gal down. I got to take that guy down because they are making such a difference in this world. And so we're not smarter than the devil. And so we really have to, my prayer is, is take heed to, to these warnings. These things are written uh, for our own admonition. So Jeremiah chapter uh, 36, notice what we read here in verse 1. It says, Now it, it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll of a book and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah even to this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities which I purpose to bring upon them, that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. And so here we see it's the fourth year of Jehoiakim. So that's right around 604 B.C., and so if you study the chronology of everything, you'll find that the Babylonians were there. And what ends up happening, Jeremiah has been prophesying for 23 years now. 
And God says, after 23 years of speaking, now I want you to put it into writing. And the reason is, is because I want you to warn these people that um, judgment is coming. A heavy, crazy judgment. There's three things that he talked about over and over again. You're going to die by the sword. You're going to die by famine. You're going to die by pestilence. The, the, the temple is going to be burned to the ground. And all you rich people who think you have your nice houses, those nice, beautiful, lush houses will be burned to the ground. And so tell them this. Now, Jeremiah, I need you to put it in writing. Because maybe when they hear it, if they really hear it, like, hey, there's you know, consequences to sin, then maybe they'll turn from their sin. And God says, so that I can forgive them. You know, and so for me, I mean, there's different ways of sinning. Thank God I don't get high anymore. Thank God I don't get drunk anymore. You know, thank God I'm not throwing out F-bombs anymore. But there's also sins, not just of commission, there's sins of omission. Things that I should do that I don't do. Manny, you need to pray like this. Am I? You need to read your Bible like this. Am I? What are you watching on television? What are you listening to? You know, how are you treating your wife? How are you treating your kids? How are you treating your mom? You name it. There's so many areas of life. The Lord says, you know, don't live in sin. I'm warning you that, you know, if you don't change, then you're going to suffer the consequences. God tells Jeremiah, okay, let's uh, let's put this in, in writing. And so one of the things I wanted to talk about is just the whole concept of warning. Um, young adults, speaking of young adults, I, I don't know why there's this article towards young adults that said they, they need more, they, they don't listen to the warning lights on their cars. So that's what it says right here. I'm sorry, you know, if you're young, I'm sure it's applicable to everybody, but it says a recent study of Gen Z and millennial car owners reveal that it takes an average of eight warning lights for them to schedule vehicle maintenance. of young adults tend to disregard and continue driving with excessive emissions, low tire pressure, and even low oil levels. I remember this one guy, young adult, beautiful, beautiful Toyota truck. He just kept driving it, driving it, never put oil in it, and he burned the engine, man. And and so, you know, um, you may think it's not a big deal. Any of you guys ever get that light on when your tires are low? Air tire pressure is low. Now, that's for some of the newer cars. If you have an older car, you have to check it. But you want to know something? That's important because if your tire pressure is low, you're going to get worse gas mileage. You're going to have worse performance, and you have a greater potential to have a blowout. And so every year, they say uh, there are 78,000 crashes uh, in automobiles because of blowouts and of those 78,000 crashes, 400 of them die. Why? Because they didn't listen to the warning that said, hey, you need to put air in your tires. You know, and I don't know what the warning is for you as far as the Lord goes. Um, listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. I know for me, we always talk about this, right, guys? That you have a relationship with God. Don't, do you or, or not? And what's he been saying to you? And whatever it is, my encouragement to you is be quick to obey. Give him every area of your life, you know? 
Um, there's another uh, warning I was reading about um, this guy who was uh, wanted to swim over in, uh, in uh, Australia. He was actually an, an evangelist, and he says, I was once in Australia visiting a friend, and he took me to a beach on Botany Bay. So I decided I had to go for a swim. I was just taking off my shirt when he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm going for a swim. He said, what about those signs? And he pointed to me some signs that I had not really noticed. It said, danger, sharks. With all the confidence of an Englishman abroad, I said, don't be ridiculous. I'll be fine. He said, listen, mate, 200 Australians have died in shark attacks. You've got to decide whether those shark signs are there to save you or ruin your fun. You're of age, you decide. I decided to go for a swim and I got eaten. No, I'm just joking. That's not what happened. (laughs) I decided not to go for a swim. Now, again, I know that's a little bit different. You're like, man, but I want to go to the beach. Well, certain areas, certain times, uh, right now, there was even a shark attack. Did you guys hear about the one in New York? I guess because the waters are getting warmer. First time in 70 years uh, this lady was attacked. Again, not as common. Uh, They say 70 shark attacks annually happen around the world, that's not a lot, and out of the 70, uh, 10 fatalities. And so, you know, I I think it's probably okay to go to the beach, but there are certain places, certain warnings, certain signs that we need to make sure that we take to heart. Now, I'm going to give you guys one last illustration, and you're probably going to stone me for this. Okay, do you guys have any stones? You don't have any stones, do you? Okay, when I was in the world, I liked a band, it was called Van Halen. And so Van Halen has an album, it's actually called Fair Warning. Any of you guys remember that album, Fair Warning? Okay, only Andrew, that's good. You guys are like super, you know, Christians. Anyways, uh, I remember in the song, um, he said something like this, David Lee Roth, he's a singer for Van Halen, and it's, it's a song called Mean Street. So you don't have to go listen to it, but it's a weird song, it's called Mean Street. And he said, somebody said, Fair Warning. Lord, strike that poor boy down. And what he's saying in this album is that you shouldn't give anybody fair warnings. That's the devil's perspective. I don't want them to have any warnings regarding these things. You shouldn't warn them. God's perspective is, I need to warn you because I love you. I want you to know the power of obedience. And the Bible says this, and I tell uh, individuals this all the time. You do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. Galatians chapter 6, 6 and 7. And so if you sin and you continue to sin, you're thinking, well, I'm getting away with it. No, you're not. And so my encouragement to you is to heed the warnings of God. And, you know, here the Lord says, Jeremiah, I want you to write this down. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so Jeremiah is now going to write the Bible, and it's the Holy Spirit moving him as he's writing, influencing him, not taking away his own style and artistic designs, but God moving him to write the Bible. Jeremiah 25.13 tells us that it wasn't the first time Jeremiah mentions his message in written form. There it says, So I will bring on that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. And so we read in verse 4, Then uh, Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neraiah, 
and Baruch wrote on a scroll of a book, at the instruction of Jeremiah, all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I am confined. I cannot go into the house of the Lord. You go, therefore, and read from the scroll which you have written at my instruction the words of the Lord in the hearing of the people in the Lord's house on the day of fasting. And you shall also read them in the hearing of all Judah who come from their cities. It may be that they will present their supplication before the Lord and everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and the fury that the Lord has pronounced against his people. And so Baruch was Jeremiah's secretary. He was, they were called scribes back then. He says, okay, write this down. I'm confined. Now, we don't know his exact uh, reasons for that, but he couldn't go. Uh, probably because earlier in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7, other places, he went to the temple and he was preaching and they probably didn't like it. They probably said, hey, you're not allowed here. So now he says, write this down in a scroll and then I want you to go to the temple. I want you to go to all the people and I want you to read these words to them. And again, notice it's in the Lord's house on the day of fasting. And so Jeremiah knew that they were going to call for a fast. And so it could have been the, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. But more than likely, when you look at the historical records, what had happened was um, they would periodically call for a fast when they were desperate. And so um, Jeremiah says, there's going to be a day when the people are going to be fasting. And, and supposedly, from a religious perspective, they're going to really want God. They're going to really want God. And so I want you to go and I want you to read the word of God to them. I want you to read these warnings to them. Now, we don't know what the response was from this particular preaching moment, um, but we'll see that it does uh, eventually lead to other things. And so we read in verse 8. Notice what it says. And Baruch, the son of Neriah, did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him, reading from the book of of the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. Now it came to pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, that they proclaimed a fast before the Lord to all the people in Jerusalem and to all of Judah to Jerusalem, to all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem. Then Baruch read from the book the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, the scribe, in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house in the hearing of all the people. And so we read in verse 9 that it's the ninth month. Now in the Jewish calendar, um, we're talking March, April is when it would start. And so now it's going to be somewhere in December. As a matter of fact, it's interesting, from no, somewhere in, from November 24th to December 23rd is when this happens. And so we read in verse 11, when Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the book, he then went down to the king's house, into the scribe's chamber, and there all the princes or officials were sitting. Elishama, the scribe, Deliah, the son of Shemaiah, Elnathan, the son of Akbor. And just in case you're wondering, why they mentioned the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so? Because they didn't do it like we do. You know, you would say Manny Coronia or Billy Graham or whoever it is. That we know it's not just Billy, whoever. So that's, they're, they're specifically identifying people. 
And they would do that uh, by who they were the son of, or they would do that by their positions. And so they were really like honing in on who these individuals were. It says in verse 12, he then went down to the king's house and the scribe's chamber, and there all the princes were sitting, Elishama the scribe, Delaiah the son of Shemaiah, Elnathan the son of Akbor, Gemariah the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah the son of Hananiah, and all the princes. And then Micaiah declared to them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the book in the hearing of the people. Therefore all the princes sent Jehudai, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Cushi, to Baruch, saying, Take in your hand the scroll from which you have read in the hearing of the people, and come. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the scroll in, the hands, in his hands and came to them. And they said to him, Sit down now and read it in our hearing. So Baruch read it in their hearing. And so, again, um, first thing, Jeremiah says, write this down, Baruch. Then go read it to the people. He eventually read it to the people at the temple. Then this guy right here, Micaiah, heard him. And so then he goes over there to the palace officials and the secretaries or scribes that were there. He tells them what happened. And so then they say, hey, go back and get Baruch so that he can come back to us and that he can read those words to us. And so it's interesting, this guy, Micaiah, he was the grandson of Shaphan, the man who read the newly found book of the law to King Josiah back in 2 Kings chapter 22. Now, this is, might be a connection here, but might not. So you travel back just a couple of kings before to Josiah, and this is what had happened. When they were doing repairs in the temple, they found the Bible. They found the law of the Lord that had been lost in, in the temple. So they found it, and then they took it back, and they read it to King Josiah. And so this guy, Shaphan, is interesting. He's his grandson. And so I think, personally, that more than likely, the word of God was important to Shaphan. It became important to his son, and then that became important to his son, his grandson. And I'll tell you guys, that's the influence that we can have. God will, you have a love for the word, isn't it so cool? You pass that down to your kids. And hopefully they pass that down to generation after generation. Well, this guy, he was excited about it. Wow, he goes and he tells everybody, hey, this is what Jeremiah is saying. And so they bring him over and so that he then comes and uh, he tells them to read it to the guys. So we read in verse 16. Now it happened when they had heard all the words that they looked in fear from one to another. And they said to Baruch, well, we will surely tell the king of all these words. And they asked Baruch, saying, tell us now, how did you write all these words at, at his instruction? And so Baruch answered them, he proclaimed, speaking of Jeremiah, he proclaimed with his mouth all these words to me, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Then the princess said to Baruch, go and hide you and Jeremiah and let no one know where you are. And so these guys heard it, and I love what it says. They were afraid. There was fear. But it was a healthy fear of God. Manny, do you know what will happen to you if you don't pray? Manny, do you know what will happen to you if you look at girls on this thing with whatever, cleavage, do you know what will happen to you if you start looking at porn or you start whatever it might be, whatever the different things are 
And, and, and then there should be a healthy fear of, of God. You know, we have so many things, we know, when we listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And, and I love what the Bible says in Isaiah 66, verse 2. It says, but on this one will I look, God says, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. So God's saying, you know, the guy, the gal that is humble, humble, and when they read the Bible, they just tremble at God's word. And so when these guys heard it from, from Jer- uh, Baruch, they, you know, they were afraid, and it's a good thing to be afraid, you know? God will discipline his children whom he loves if we continue in consistent, persistent, resistant sin. Period. And so God just wants us to live this life of obedience. And so he warns them. And so, you know, I believe there are many valid fears um, that unfortunately people miss out on. Number one, the fear of God. And number two, the fear of his word. But unfortunately, we're going to see these guys right here as they now take it to the king, that they end up fearing the king more than they do the Bible. You know, and there's a, another passage in Proverbs 29, 25. It says, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. And so notice what you read next in verse 20. It says, and they went to the king into the court, but they stored the scroll in the chamber of Elishama the scribe and told all the words in the hearing of the king. So the king sent Jehudai to bring the scroll and he took it from Elishama, the scribe's chamber, and Jehudai read it in the hearing of the king and in the hearing of all the princes who stood besides the king. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month, remember it's November, December, with a fire burning on the hearth before him. And check this out. And it happened when Jehudai had read three or four columns that the king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they they were not afraid, nor did they tear their garments, the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words. Imagine, you guys, if I told you, God told me to tell you, and let's just say, you know, you're Jeremiah the prophet, you've been prophesying for 23 years, he puts it in writing, and God sends me to your house, and God told me to tell you, you're going to die either by sword or famine or pestilence. I mean, I don't, they, at first, yeah, whoa, that's heavy. But then afterwards, then whether the king, they're looking at his response and he doesn't like it, he cuts it, he burns it, he wants nothing to do with it. And now all of a sudden, they're not, no longer afraid of God. Now they're afraid of the king and they join forces tragically with the king. Think about that. He burns the word of God. Verse 24, again, yet they were not afraid, nor did they tear their garments, the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words. Nevertheless, El Nathan, Delaiah, and Gemariah implored the king not to burn the scroll, but he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiel, the king's son, Saraiah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdiel, to seize Baruch, the scribe, and Jeremiah, the prophet, but the Lord hid them. So it's an interesting story. Um, 
I don't know, you guys. I don't want to read too much into it, but you want to know what I think? I think the king was probably possessed by the devil or influenced by the devil, and he just hates the Bible. He hates the Word of God. What's like the worst thing you can do? Burn it. Burn it. And you know, and there's that conviction. There's that you know message, uh, unfortunately, of truth that the devil hates and so this is what he does. Um, it's interesting, Second Kings chapter 22, when they read the Bible to Josiah, he, he tore his clothes, you know? But now, unfortunately, they end up, what a big, uh, a vast difference. Here we see, unfortunately, that because of the king, uh, these people right here did not do the right thing. You know, my encouragement to you, um, let me just ask you guys this. Do you fear God? Yes or no? Say yes. Why do you fear God? Um, because you love God. Because you know He loves you. And uh, you, we don't fear God like, oh, if my little, my, just a little mistake right here is going to hit me over the head with a lead pipe or something. You're not like that, right? We, we fear God in a, in a reverential way, in a way of awe. It would be like if you're driving. Okay, let's just say you're driving. Let's just say you're a young driver and you're driving and there's a cop behind you. Okay, um, more than likely, you know, you're not going to be sweating bullets, but you're going to drive a little different probably because I've seen some of you guys drive and it's just not good. I'm not speaking to my nephew here or anything, but I'm just saying, you know, he's a good driver. But, you know, you're there and you're and, and so, you know, the cops behind you. And so there's an aspect of that kind of fear. That's not what we're talking about. But let's just say you're a new driver and your father is behind you. And he's driving, okay? It's, that's kind of like how it is. You're like, okay, I probably should drive good because my dad is behind me. I want to please him. And if I run the stop sign or if I'm speeding or if whatever, I'm doing the wrong thing, um, I'll disappoint him. And he might get a little upset and take my you know, keys away or the car away or whatever. So there's an aspect of we fear God in that sense. And my, my prayer is that when we read the word, that there would be a reverence for this Bible. You know, um, yesterday, Henry and I, we were talking about in the live talks about spiritual battle that's going on. And there is a, a spiritual battle. Now, if you're a Christian, praise God, you won the war. Huh? Jesus has given us the victory. But what about all along the way, you guys? There's battles, huh? There's battles. How will you win those battles against the devil and fallen angels. How will you win the battle against demons who hate you? They, man, look at these people. Look at this guy coming to a midweek service. Who does he think he is, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean, barely, you know, Sundays. People go on Sundays, but what the heck are they doing there at the midweek service? Why are they there on a Friday night? Why are they there on a Saturday morning? And so, you know, there's this war that's going to take place. And, and, and really, there were three things that stood out from what we were talking about yesterday. One of them was prayer. And God really convicted my heart. And he said, man, if you're going to fight the devil, you better make sure you have a strong prayer life. Because remember, the Lord told Peter, watch and pray. Satan's been asking for you guys that it may sift you as wheat. You got to pray. You're never going to win against the devil if you don't pray. And then speaking of Job, you got to persevere. You know, Job went through everything he went through, you know, the death of loved ones, the loss of his health, the loss of all his finances. And behind all of that, what was magnifying everything was the devil himself. 
The, the way that Job won was he, he didn't give up. He persevered. He had a hard time and he was struggling and he maybe even complained to God a little bit, but he never lost his faith. He persevered. So prayer, perseverance, and then the word of God. Many people watch more television than they do read their Bibles. You know, and my encouragement to you is just be careful. They say seven hours of screen time and we're on our phone and all that kind of stuff. And all I know is that if you, you know, you're looking at your grass and this is, doesn't, it's not rocket science. How can I get my grass green? Water. Water. Just, if you soak it in water, guess what will happen? Your, your, your bill will go way up, man. It's going to be crazy. <laughs> but the grass will be green. It really will. I'm, I'm telling you, well, I need fertilizer and all that other stuff. It's true. That's helpful. But I'm telling you, that's the way it is with us. Saturate yourself in the scriptures. Unfortunately, the devil comes and when, you know, the word is, is spoken to, to this king, um, he just burns it. And these guys that they should have loved the word and feared God and feared the, the word of God, they end up capitulating to what the king does. And so we read it in verse 27. Here uh, it says, Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words which Baruch had written at the instruction of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Take yet another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And you shall say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll, saying, why have you written in that that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and cause man and beast to cease from here? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. And by the way, for the Jew, that was the, the most humiliating thing of all, to die and not be buried. The Jewish and the Christian view of the body is you bury the body because it's like a seed. And the seed goes into the ground and it, it rises up. You read 1 Corinthians 15, it rises up with this glorious celestial body. So if a person dies and they're there left to be eaten by the dogs... You know, this was the worst. And so because this guy had burned the, the word, you know, Jeremiah is just going to rewrite it. But now he brings judgment upon himself. And it says right here in verse 31, I will punish him, his family, and his servants for their iniquity. And I will bring on them, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and on the men of Judah, all the doom that I have pronounced against them. But they did not heed. Then Jeremiah took another scroll, gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the instruction of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And besides, there were added to them many similar words. Now, when you look at this right here, you, you can't stop the Bible. You, you can't burn the Bible and I know we're looking at this as only one of the 66 books of the Bible. But this right here, I think in one sense, it shows us what the enemy thinks of the Bible. If he hates it so much that he wants to burn it, how much more so should we love it 
and learn it and live it. It is our sword against the devil, right? Now, throughout history, the devil has tried to destroy the Bible. But Jesus said in Mark 13, 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Isaiah chapter 40, great verses in verse 6 through 8, is quoted in 1 Peter 1, 24 through 25. It says, the voice said, cry out. And he said, well, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now, Jesus said in John 10, 35, the scriptures cannot be broken. And so, you know, we're going to die, they're going to die, that's going to die, whatever it might be, the whole world, the heavens, the earth, it's all going to vanish away, but not this. This is how awesome the word of God is. And this guy tried to burn it thinking he can get rid of it. No, no, you can't get rid of it. You know, over the ages, the enemies of God have tried to burn or bury the Bible in vain. If you go back to 175 BC, the king of Syria, Antiochus Epiphanes, he ordered the Jews on the threat of death to destroy all their scriptures. You go back in history, many efforts directed towards destroying the Bible. Many of you have probably heard of the emperor of Rome, Diocletian, the ruler immediately preceding Constantine. And this guy right here, according to Eusebius, the historian, said the royal edicts were published everywhere, commanding that the churches be leveled to the ground and the scriptures destroyed by fire. And so Diocletian went on to say that if one had a copy of the scriptures and did not surrender it to be burned, if it were discovered, he would be killed. Furthermore, if anyone even knew of someone who had a copy of the Bible and they didn't turn them in, they would be killed. And so during this time, when you read throughout history, between 284 and 316, many, many copies of the Bible were burned. Copies, if you think about it back then, that were laboriously written by hand. And so the historian Newman said, multitudes hasten to deny the faith and to surrender their copies of the scriptures, but there were many more who didn't. You know, and they bore the most horrible tortures and refused with their last breath to surrender the scriptures in any way, to in any way compromise themselves. I mean, think about it. How many of us here would die for this? Like, you know, if our governor, I'm sure he would love to if he could, man, you turn in your Bible, you're going to you know, die. You'll be executed. You'll spend life in prison. I'll bet you a lot of people would turn in their Bibles. But no, for us, we have to understand how important they are. You know, it's interesting. After the edict of Diocletian had been enforced for two years, he boasted. And he said this, I have completely exterminated the Christian writings from the face of the earth. He thought all the scriptures were gone. Imagine, imagine that. But you guys know history. Do you remember what emperor followed Diocletian? Constantine. And we don't know for sure on the whole history of, of everything, but uh, under Constantine, Christianity not only became legalized, but it, was, it just became propagated. And when Constantine became emperor, supposedly he got saved, he had a vision. It's a really fascinating story. Um, right after this guy, Diocletian said, I'm going to get rid of the scriptures, no more Bible. The next guy gets saved. 
And he says, hey, this is good for us. And then what ends up happening is he makes an edict. And he says, if any of you guys have a Bible, because they couldn't find any, if any of you out there have a Bible, I will reward you. It took only one day, and they found 50 Bibles that were turned in. Because you can't destroy the word of God. God promised that he would preserve it. Throughout the ages, there have been attacks in many ways. For example, Voltaire, the noted French infidel who died in 1778, he made his attempt to destroy the Bible in his way, and he boldly proclaimed the prediction that within 100 years, the Bible and Christianity would have been swept from existence into oblivion. But Voltaire's efforts and his prophecy failed as miserably as did those of his unbelieving predecessors. In fact, within a hundred years, the very printing press upon which Voltaire had printed his infidel literature, that same printing press was now being used to print copies of the Bible and afterwards. And this is interesting because I made sure this was true. I, I went to different websites to make sure it wasn't exaggerated. This guy, Voltaire, who said, in a hundred years, Christianity will be gone. The Bible will be swept away. In his house, Bibles were being stored. And don't you think that God was trying to tell us this message? Listen, this is my word. Heaven and earth will pass away. My word will not pass away. And if it's that important for God to preserve the way that he has in such a way, to me, I'm like, okay, Lord, this man, I'll tell you what, I live this word. I I love this word. I breathe it. I I try my best to live it. I want to know it from Genesis to Revelation. I want to know the minor prophets. I want to know the Proverbs every single day of my life. I want to read the Psalms at night. God will show you how to read the Bible, but I'm telling you this, you know, I can't, you know, necessarily, I don't think we can live on maybe giving you an apple, but if you get an apple tree, if you learn this, you'll be blessed. You know, one guy said, um, we might as well put our shoulder to the burning wheel of the sun and try to stop on its flaming course in, in an attempt to stop the circulation of the Bible. Imagine going up to the sun and trying to stop it from spinning or trying to stop it from burning. You can't. One person said, in spite of the strongest forces that hell could unleash and in the face of the animosity of tyrants and dictators, There are more Bibles on the earth today than there are copies of any other book ever written by the hand of man. And so that guy tried to burn it. God just rewrote it, added a little prophecy. I'm going to get you. (laughs) You're going to die. The dogs will eat you. You won't have any descendants to be king. I mean, this is so cool when you read the way that God preserves his word. And so we read next in, in verse 32. It says, oh, we already read that. So now we go to chapter 37. It says, now King Hezekiah, the son of Josiah, reigned instead of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, who Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah. Now we're going to fast forward now uh, to the last king of Judah. And so it says in verse 2, but neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land gave heed to the words of the Lord, which he had spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And Zedekiah the king sent Jehuchel, the son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah, the prophet of Jeremiah, saying, Pray now to the Lord our God for us. Now Jeremiah was coming and going among the people, for they had not yet put him in prison. We're going to see that happens next chapter. For then Pharaoh's army came up from Egypt, and when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news of them, 
they departed from Jerusalem. And so we're going to see real quick, you guys, um, how this king, Zedekiah, he was a real flimsy leader. And he goes you know, back and forth. He really has no you know, backbone. He kind of is similar to Pontius Pilate in one sense. And he sends to Jeremiah and he says, hey, pray for us. Do you guys have any non-believing friends that ask you to pray for them? And you do pray for them, right? But it'd be better like, hey, bro, you should just get saved. You know? <laughs> then you could pray for yourself and then you'll be blessed. But anyways, this is what he does. And so while this happens, the Babylonians, and you read the Battle of Carchemish, um, the Egyptians had kind of rebelled. And so now the Babylonians leave Jerusalem and they go to deal with the Egyptians. And so the Jews are thinking, oh, we're good. And so this is what happens next in verse 6. And the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to the king of Judah who sent you to me to inquire of me. Behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come up to help you, will return to Egypt to their own land. In other words, the Egyptians are going to go back to their land. And the Chaldeans are going to come back and fight against this city, Jerusalem, and take it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourselves, saying the Chaldeans will surely depart from us, for they will not depart. For though you had defeated the whole army of the Chaldeans who fight against you, and there remained only wounded men among them, they would rise up every man in his tent, look at this, and burn the city with fire. See, be careful that you don't deceive yourself. You start thinking things that are contrary to the word. God had said, you guys are going to be judged. Oh, now the Babylonians are over there fighting the Egyptians. No, Jeremiah's word is not true. No, it is true. You know, for us, my prayer is that we would be in the word and know this um, because it's then. I always tell you guys this. It's the truth in the land of lies. That's why you have to know your Bible. It says in verse 11, And it happened when the army of the Chaldeans left the siege of Jerusalem for fear of Pharaoh's army, that Jeremiah went out of Jerusalem to go into the land of Benjamin to claim his property there among the people. Now, Jeremiah lived about three miles from Jerusalem, right there in Anathoth. It says, And when he was in the gate of Benjamin, a captain of the guard was there whose name was Erijah, the son of Shalemiah, the son of Hananiah. And he sees Jeremiah the prophet saying, you are defecting to the Chaldeans. Then Jeremiah said, false, I am not defecting to the Chaldeans. But he did not listen to him. So Erijah seized Jeremiah, brought him to the princes. Therefore the princes were angry with Jeremiah. And in the Hebrew it says they beat him and put him in the prison in the house of Jonathan the scribe. For they had made that the prison. When Jeremiah entered the dungeon and the cells, and Jeremiah had remained there many days, then Zedekiah the king sent and took him out. The king asked him secretly in his house and said, Is there any word from the Lord? 
And Jeremiah changed his message. No, he didn't. Look what this happens. It says, there is, you shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. Imagine being in prison, being locked up, solitary confinement, simply because you're giving this message. Now you have a window, you got a lapse, and he says, okay, tell me the message again. What is it? It's the same message. How can a prophet say the same thing? How can we say the same thing? This guy must have a personal relationship with God, sensitive to the Holy Spirit, not willing to say anything in order to save his own skin. And so, you know, it's interesting when you read Jeremiah, just the heart that he had. It says in verse 18, Moreover, Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, What offense have I committed against you, against your servants or against his people, that ye have put me in prison? Jeremiah says, I'm innocent. Where now are your prophets who prophesied to you, saying the king of Babylon will not come against you or against this land? Therefore, please hear me now, O Lord, my King. Please let my petition be accepted before you and do not make me return to the house of Jonathan the scribe, lest I die there. And one of the crazy things is, and this happens sometimes um, in life, is you're a, a true Christian and because of that, you're hated. You're a true Christian. I'm not talking about obnoxious. I'm not talking about weird. I'm talking about sincere. I'm talking about true. And because of that, you're hated. And so when they found Jeremiah going to his hometown, just take care of business, oh, no, that's not, I'm not defecting. I love my nation. I'm not defecting. They, they didn't believe him. Why? Because they hated him. And Jesus said, they hated Jesus. Did they hate Jesus? Did they hate Jesus? Then they're going to hate you. If, you're living that life. And so this is what happens right here. Verse 21, Then Zedekiah the king commanded that they should commit Jeremiah to the court of the prison and that they should give him daily a piece of bread from the Baker Street until all the bread in the city was gone. Thus Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. And so his uh, living arrangements were improved a little bit. Um, he wasn't no, no longer in the dungeon in that prison now it was a different type of setting, court, you know. But think about this. And I, I don't like bread. I'm the first guy to admit, I love bread. Do you guys like bread? You know what I'm talking about. I just love bread. Sometimes I go to restaurants and I just eat the bread and I leave the free bread, you know. <laughs> that's how much I love bread. No, I'm just joking. I would never do that. But, I mean, if that's all you had all day, all day, that's all you had. And you're like, wait a minute, Lord, I'm like your prophet. And God says, well, there's a different kind of prophet that you're not going to get. You're not going to get a lot of money. You're going to be hurt. You're going to be here in prison. But it's all because of the fact that Jeremiah was faithful. So I don't know what's going to happen to you guys. I don't know what's going to happen to me. But my prayer is that no matter what, no matter what, we would not compromise. We have to speak the word. And as we do, we got to speak it and live it. And uh, then God will do that work. You know, in London back in 1979, they came across some fresh graffiti. And it said this, if you can visualize this graffiti, an interesting graffiti. There is no problem so big that it, can be, it can't be run away from. And I don't know if you can catch that. There's no problem so big that it can't be run away from. And I thought about that. I'm like, what are they talking about? And basically, they're talking about this guy, um, this king, who says, this is a big problem. 
I'm just going to run. I'm going to run. I'm going to run. I'm going to hide. I'm going to stick my head in the sand. I, I don't have to face this. Listen, you guys, we can't run from these things. We can't run from being guilty before God. We can't run from the word of God. We can't run from God. My prayer tonight, just in case there might be someone out there who finds himself, you know, maybe needing a new beginning, needing a new start, is that you don't run away from God. You can't. My prayer is that we would run to God. Amen? Let's do that.